Dear Father, yesterday we admired how you would condescend to give a dim light when that was all that we could handle. And how again and again through the Old Testament you met us when we were so far away from the ideal. But now we have seen the ideal in your Son, Jesus. And today we want to see you more clearly. We want the veil of lies and distortions about you removed that we can behold the true beauty of your character. Please help us to do that this morning. Amen. Well, I hope it was apparent during our discussion yesterday that God really did pull out all the stops in the Old Testament. Uh, But, of course, he didn't stop there. And Jesus' words, the first uh, verse on your handout there, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you kill the prophets and stone the messengers God has sent you. How many times I wanted to put my arms around all your people, just as the hen gathers her chicks under her wings, that you would not let me. And those how many times, I mean, that would go all the way back to the very beginning, would it not? How many times? And so ultimately this... uh, climaxed with God himself coming to earth. And so Paul, and it's interesting how many of these books open up, you know, 1 John 1, John 1, Hebrews 1, um, that Paul and John, they're just amazed. You know, that was God who walked among us, almost like they can't believe it. And their books start out in this great amazement. And so Paul opens Hebrews, in the past, God spoke to our ancestors many times and in many ways through the prophets But in these last days, he has spoken to us through his son. All right. And as we said, uh, we've referred to these verses before, but Jesus came as the light of the world because our minds have been kept in the dark by the evil God of this world. And Jesus himself became like them, like us, shared their human nature. He did this so that through his death, he might destroy the devil. And again, the Son of God appeared for this very reason to destroy what the devil had done. And again, as a reminder, what the devil had done is completely distorted, misrepresented the kind of person God is and completely distorted and misrepresented the great principle of God's kingdom, other-centered love, unselfishness. And when we think about the many times and many ways I think it's just helpful for review. It just seems as if God is trying this. Well, let me see if they'll respond to that. Maybe they'll respond to this. And so we go back again to the Old Testament. Song of Songs. Um, God the lover. And really, he's saying here, the relationship that you can have with me is no less than the most intense in love relationship that you can have on earth. All right, did they respond to that? Surely they'll respond to that. Well, no, they didn't. So we have other descriptions. And in Revelation, the bridegroom and the wedding. And so the new earth, uh, Jerusalem comes down dressed like a bride, ready for her husband. And as these things are scattered throughout the Bible, I imagine God thinking, maybe they'll respond to that, those, those tender words. Well, they didn't respond to that. How about Hosea? Maybe they'll respond to that, where uh, we are the prostitute who has left God, but in his great love, he goes out to bring us in, despite the fact that we've gone so far away. Uh, Maybe they'll respond to that. Well, how about this? Um, God is the good shepherd. 
tenderly caring for his sheep. And we have all these moving stories. And Jesus uh, brings it more to home where even if you're with a lost one, he will leave the 99 to go after the lost one. And I am the good shepherd willing to die. Uh, maybe they'll respond to that message about the good shepherd. Well, how about the vineyard owner? And I love how this opens in Isaiah 5. I'll sing a ballad to the one I love, a ballad about his vineyard. Uh, tender story there. Maybe they'll respond to the story of the vineyard owner. Well, how about um, God as a friend? I don't call you servants any longer. I call you friends. Um, surely the people will respond to a message of God who wants to be their friend. Um, how could God describe it in more tender ways? Well, how about this? How about a nursing mother? And we have these words. Could a mother forget a child who nurses at her breast? Could she fail to love an infant who came from her own body? Even if a mother could forget, I will never forget you. Okay, surely that will work. It just it didn't seem to work though, did it? And so we have the tender story of the prodigal son where the picture is painted as even while the son is a long way off, the father is there with his arms open. I mean, how many times and in how many ways has God tried to get the point across of what he wants? But ultimately, we see that in Jesus and ultimately we see that at the cross. So I won't read these verses, or I'm sorry, these um, Ellen White quotes again, but just to remind the underlying portions there. Satan had represented God as one who delights in the sufferings of his creatures, who's revengeful. Boy, is that true. And then later, through the accumulated misrepresentations of the enemy, many were so deceived that they worshipped a false god clothed with the attributes of the satanic character. All right, God was painted as arbitrary, severe, and unforgiving. And again, just as a review, as we said yesterday, was this believed about God when he came? Yes, to the religious people. Jesus had to say, you are the children of your father, the devil. You believe the lies and you want to follow your father's desires. From the very beginning, he was a murderer and has never been on the side of truth because there is no truth in him. When he tells a lie, he is only doing what is natural to him because he is a liar and the father of lies. All right, so there is a great competition, a great war going on for the mind. Are we giving our allegiance to God, to a God who is just like Jesus, or to the false picture of God, which Satan has painted? And so Jesus came to these people, and um, as he said things like, uh, blessed are the meek, um, Boy, they must have sat up. Blessed are the meek. This is not, that's not at all the picture of God that they had. Or learn from me because I am gentle and humble in spirit. And if they were tempted just for a second to think that God was gentle and humble in spirit, uh, I think that was it. Okay, this obviously could not be the Messiah. Gentle and humble. You had a question up front here. I thought someone raised their hand. Okay. Um, so anyway, this picture of God... Um, seems so contrary. And what I want to do, remember we've said, what is more important? Um, a summary key text. And I love the summary key text. God is love. That's wonderful. But let's just go through how the disciples recorded the evidence just about the way Jesus interacted with people. And let's try to focus our picture now on the kind of person God is. Just little things that uh, we might just read over. The rich young ruler Look at this. Jesus looked straight at him with love. Now, would you like Jesus to look straight at you with love? I mean, that's incredible, isn't it? That must have made an impression here on the writer of Mark. And the woman at the well. 
the Samaritan woman at the well, the words, if you knew the generosity of God and who I am, you would be asking me for a drink and I would give you fresh living water. The woman said, I don't know about that. I do know that the Messiah is coming. When he arrives, we'll get the whole story. And of course, the words from Jesus, I am he, said Jesus. You don't have to wait any longer or look any further. And the way he unfolded all of this to this woman was just wonderful. All right, the death of Lazarus. Lazarus. And we record or we read that his heart was touched and he was deeply moved. Jesus wept. Now, do you like a God who is deeply moved to the point of tears by the suffering of humanity? I do. I'm glad those words are there. And how about to the poor widow? The truth is that this poor widow gave more to the collection than all the others put together. All the others gave what they'll never miss. She gave extravagantly what she couldn't afford. She gave her all. Now, are we happy that our God is not impressed with uh, the proud big show, but rather the humble, gentle, quiet, poor widow who dropped in all that she could. Well, what about Jesus and children? And we read, Then he took the children in his arms, placed his hands on each of them, and blessed them. Uh, Incredible. And Ellen White's words on this, He went about doing good and healing all that were oppressed by Satan. There were whole villages where there was not a moan of sickness in any house, for he had passed through them and healed all their sick. His work gave evidence of his divine anointing. Love, mercy, and compassion were revealed in every act of his life. His heart went out in tender sympathy to the children of men. He took man's nature that he might reach man's wants. The poorest and humblest were not afraid to approach him. Even little children were attracted to him. They loved to climb upon his knees and gaze into his pensive face, benignant with love. Now, the evidence here about our God, I think, becomes very compelling. And before we go through some of the other verses, uh, turn your Bible to Romans 2.4, because we need to see and understand what is God doing here? How How does God win us to him. Okay, Paul has just described God's wrath, as you'll remember, which three times God lets them go. He gives them up when he can't do anything more. How does God win us? Romans 2.4 Or perhaps you despise his great kindness. Tolerance and patience. Surely you know that God is kind because he is trying to lead you to repent. Now we're going to see in story after story that it was the kindness of Jesus, not a compelling, uh, intimidating force, but it was the kindness and love of Jesus which brought people to repentance. We'll go through a number of examples of this. Uh, But again, as as we said and as, as one of you said so well, This is not just a calculated, uh, okay, Jesus is saying, well, I could be intimidating, but I'm going to choose to be kind. This is just the way God is. He is supremely kind. But this is the power of God. Let's look at a few examples. With the disciples. And how many times, um, I don't know if you've had the chance just to read through one gospel all the way, 
you know, like in a day or so. But how many times the disciples grumbling, complaining, we want to be first, we want to be first. And on one of these occasions, as they were grumbling, Jesus turned to them and said, um, what were you arguing about on the road? All right, now Jesus, uh, you know, we think about the ways he could have brought this up with the disciples, um, could have just addressed them point blank. Why are you arguing about who's going to be first in the kingdom? Uh, but instead, it's kind of like when he came to the garden, to Adam and Eve. Where are you? Knew where they were. But here, um, what were you talking about? Gives them a chance to open up. It's a, not an intimidating way of coming to them. But of course, they would not answer him because on the road, they'd been arguing among themselves about who was the greatest. So what, now what does Jesus do? They don't respond to uh, his kind words. Um, hey, what were you guys talking about? All right, now how does he address their selfish desires? Well, here's what God does. Jesus sat down. Okay, again, that's kind of, uh, that takes the intimidating part away, doesn't it? He sits down. How many times does God sit down? Uh, Jesus, uh, when he talks to people. He called the 12 disciples and said to them, whoever wants to be first must place himself last of all and be the servant of all. And then he took a child and had him stand in front of them he put his arms around him. Now, have you ever missed that before? He put his arms around this child and said to them, whoever welcomes in my name one of these children welcomes me. And whoever welcomes me welcomes not only me, but also the one who sent me. I mean, could he have done it in a more gracious way? Instead of condemning them, he points to the ideal. This is the ideal. This is what you guys should be thinking and talking about. And... Um, Again, if you have your Bibles, just go to this uh, story in Mark 9 because uh, it continues on from there. Uh, we just finished off with 9 verse um, 37. So the next verse here, 9 verse 38. Uh, John did not get the point because what is John's response? John said to him, Teacher, we saw a man who was driving out demons in your name and we told him to stop because he doesn't belong to our group. Um, what is John saying? Hey, I, we want to be the ones who are doing that. Again, a selfish motive. Okay, he did move from saying, okay, I want to be the number one disciple. Maybe Jesus has now moved him down to, well, okay, the 12 of us will be the number one, but no one else, all right? He didn't get the point. All right, now, just like the God of the Old Testament, same kind of methods. What does Jesus do now? Okay, he's come in the most kind, gracious way that he can. John didn't get the point. And so, and then we get the hard words in verse 42. Again, uses children as an example. If anyone should cause one of these little ones to lose faith in me, it would be better for that person to have a large millstone tied around the neck and be thrown into the sea. All right, that's, that's a very hard saying, isn't it? But they didn't get the kind message. They, they, they couldn't hear that. And so Jesus comes now with uh, more of a hammer to say, hey, look, guys, this, I'm, I'm going to scare you maybe just a little bit, but apparently that's what it's going to take. All right, and uh, just like the God of the Old Testament, um, maybe it's less intimidating here as we read through the story of Jesus and his words, 
But it's the same kind of a method. method. Kindness, kindness, love, love. You don't respond to that. Okay, I'm going to have to do something a little bit more so that you can understand. And as another example of this, turn in your Bibles to Luke 15. And Luke 15 um, and 16 records five parables that Jesus told to the Pharisees. And we have to take all five of these together, all right, to understand uh, the method. Jesus is talking with Pharisees who are very unhappy with uh, what Jesus is doing. Let's read the first seven verses there of chapter 15. One day when many tax collectors and other outcasts came to listen to Jesus, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law started grumbling. This man welcomes outcasts and even eats with them. So Jesus told them this parable. Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. What do you do? You leave the other 99 sheep in the pasture and go looking for the one that got lost until you find it. When you find it, you are so happy that you put it on your shoulders and carry it back home. Then you call your friends and neighbors together and say to them, I am so happy I found my lost sheep. Let's celebrate. In the same way, I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 respectable people who do not need to repent. Now, for the Pharisees standing there, who are they identifying themselves with in the story? They're the respectable sheep, right? They're the 99. All right, so as God rebukes them, does he say, look, you're out in the dark. You're, you're, you guys are losing it. No, he appeals to them as the 99 good sheep to their compassion. Look, I'm going out after the lost sheep. Okay, this should have appealed to their heart that, um, you know, that really is the ideal, isn't it? We should be going after those lost sheep. Okay, did they respond to that? Well, Jesus tells another story about the lost coin. All right, but again, the message is the same. We should celebrate and be doing all we can to bring the outcasts in. Did they respond to that? No. So we have the story of the prodigal son. And um, we have to read verse 20 of the prodigal son. So he, the father, got up. Oh, I'm sorry. So the prodigal son got up and started back to his father. While he was still a long way from home, when his father saw him, his heart was filled with pity. And he ran, threw his arms around his son and kissed him. And you'll know the son didn't even have a chance to give his speech of repentance. And the father just put his robe around him and they had a party. All right, very, very tender story about the love of God who, you know, while we are a long way off, is there with his arms open. But now what's different in this? Now we have a brother, right, who is unhappy about this. And can you not see that from the Pharisees' perspective, now they're the good 99 sheep. They're the coins that were not lost. And now uh, they are this older brother who's unhappy. Now, this is still very kind of Jesus. Okay, it's not too hard. Um, but they have to see where things are focusing in. Jesus is, they're not responding, they're not responding. He's getting more and more pointed in his story. Well, they didn't get the message. So he tells them, Another story, the shrewd manager, a very, very interesting story. But Jesus now is uh, openly rebukes the Pharisees and go to verse uh, 14. Again, they're all standing there for these five parables. They should be lumped together. And when the Pharisees heard all this, they made fun of Jesus. 
because they loved money. And Jesus said to them, You are the ones who make yourselves look right in other people's sight, but God knows your hearts. For the things that are considered of great value by people are worth nothing in God's sight. The law of Moses and the writings of the prophets were in effect up to the time of John the Baptist. Since then, the good news about the kingdom of God, the good news about the king of this kingdom, the good news about the way the king runs his kingdom, since then, this good news is being told and everyone forces their way in. Everyone's forcing their way in except for you. But it is easier for heaven and earth to disappear than for the smallest detail of the law to be done away with. Don't you understand? He's saying, you guys are the ones that are on the outs. Everyone else is coming in. All right, now, so he's done all of this. Uh, Should he stop at this point? He's given love, kindness, love, kindness. Now he tells the shrewd manager, how far is God willing to go to reach a people who are not willing to listen? And so... This is the context then for the story of the rich man and Lazarus. All right. Now, uh, maybe we should just read. So we have the story uh, in mind. But what I want you to, as we're reading this, to realize is that this parable to them fit exactly with their model of things. All right. We read Josephus. Uh, They believed that at death, some went to Abraham's bosom. Other went to a place of torture. All right, and so Jesus very much is meeting them with words that they can identify with. Okay, and again, as we read the story, who are they going to identify themselves with? The rich man. And remember, in their thinking, if you're rich, you are blessed by God, by definition. All right, so uh, uh, they are identifying with the rich man, who really is not condemned. Uh, for anything that he had done in the story. All right, so verse 19. There once was a rich man who dressed in the most expensive clothes and lived in great luxury every day. Okay, he's blessed by God. That would be the way they would understand that. There was also a poor man named Lazarus. Now, is it significant Jesus used the name Lazarus? I think so. Covered with sores who used to be brought to the rich man's door, hoping to eat the bits of food that fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs would come and lick his sores. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to sit beside Abraham at the feast in heaven. The rich man died and was buried. And in Hades, where he was in great pain, oh, this is a shocker. The rich man, in great pain, he looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus at his side. So he called out, Father Abraham, take pity on me and send Lazarus to dip his finger in some water and cool off my tongue because I am in great pain in this fire. Now, is this a very literal description of how things are in hell? And would a man in great pain ask for a drop of water? Why not a bucket um, of water here? Is there communication between these two places? Would you want to go to the good place And yet you're hearing things from people that are being tortured. But Abraham said, remember, my son, that in your lifetime you were given all the good things while Lazarus got all the bad things. But now he is enjoying himself here while you are in pain. Besides all that, there is a deep pit lying between us so that those who want to cross over from here to you cannot do so. Nor can anyone cross over to us from where you are. 
The rich man said, Then I beg you, Father Abraham, send Lazarus to my father's house where I have five brothers. Let him go and warn them so that they will at least uh, not come to this place of pain. Abraham said, Your brothers have Moses and the prophets to warn them. Your brothers should listen to what they say. The rich man answered, That is not enough, Father Abraham. But if someone were to rise from death and go to them, then surely they would turn from their sins. But Abraham said, If they will not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced, even if someone were to rise from death. Now, is this parable evidence of a place of eternal torture? Or is not Jesus using a model that they could completely identify with to use that model to reach them? And again, what is the point of a parable? A parable is not to make 10 or 15 individual points of doctrine. The parable is to make uh, one or two main points. What is the main point of this story? It is in verse 30 and 31, that even if one would rise from death, who, you know, what was Jesus' crowning miracle? The resurrection of Lazarus. You still would not be convinced. What, happens when Jesus, what happened when Jesus resurrected Lazarus? The Pharisees left the tomb to plot his death. All right? Even if one would rise from death, who rose from death again? Jesus. What happened when the Pharisees learned that the tomb was opened up and the guards came back and told about the bright angel and so on? They paid them off to keep them quiet. Okay, this was very true. Even if one would rise from death, you still will not be convinced. And that's the point of the story. But I think the reason he told this story, you know, we don't know. Maybe some of the Pharisees that were there um, and they, after Jesus died and was resurrected and they remembered this story, and maybe it was this story that caused them to believe in Jesus. But I think the, the, what I was trying to point out here is the methods that God uses. Kindness, but he will go all the way down to this level to try to reach us where we are. That is the way our God is. But how does God speak with his friends? Well, look at John 15:15. 15, 15. He would not, at this point, at the end of his life, tell his disciples the story of the rich man and Lazarus to help them understand. He's speaking clearly. I do not call you servants any longer. This is on your handout. Because servants do not know what their master is doing. Instead, I call you friends. Okay, notice what is involved in being a friend of God. It is having an understanding of what he is doing, what he's up to. All right, I like that God wants us to understand. And we talked on Tuesday morning again about the grumbling disciples and they were grumbling right up to the upper room. Okay, what did Jesus do again? He revealed his kindness. How so? Jesus knew that the Father had given him complete power so he rose from the table, took off his outer garment and tied a towel around his waist. Great kindness as a servant washing the feet of his disciples and as we said, he washed the feet of his betrayer. Now, I don't know if you've missed this, but if you just read on this story here in John 13 and you remember how careful Jesus was in although revealing that one had betrayed him, that he would dip his bread with me, he did not embarrass and humiliate Judas. And look at what happened here in John 13:29. Since Judas was in charge of the money bag, some of the disciples thought that Jesus had told him to go and buy what they needed for the festival or to give something to the poor. Now, is that not amazing? The betrayer. Now, you would think, I mean, what would naturally any of us do? 
We've been very close with someone for a long period of time. Uh, We have a full knowledge that that person has uh, just really done us in or is it going to leave to do us in in the worst possible way? What would be our natural inclination? Uh, Would it not be to make some comment? Hey, where are you going? And hey, you 11 disciples, do you know what he's going to do? Uh, wouldn't we want that a little bit? You know, let's just make him feel the pain just a little bit, humiliate him on his way out. But what are the disciples under the impression that Judas was in charge of the money bag? Did Jesus not know that the one in charge of the money bag was stealing? He left him in charge of the money bag. And that the disciples, some of them were under the impression that he was going to buy what was needed for the festival or to give something to the poor. Okay, the last time G- Judas is with Jesus and the disciples, he leaves reputation intact and some of them under the assumption he's leaving for a good motive to feed the poor. I mean, that's, it's just unthinkable. Um, but again, I think Jesus here, he's just pouring out all of his love and kindness on Judas, washing his feet, uh, even the way he left. And Judas did not respond to the great love and kindness of God. And in fact, I think he despised that God, if he was God, would be so kind. Well, the last point here on the disciples. And I think we learn perhaps the most about God in the way he dealt with Judas. But but of course, Peter, who let Jesus down um, to such a, you know, three times, uh, let him down there. And, um, and Mark, you know, we think Peter may have had a lot to do with the writing of Mark, um, records this. After the resurrection, the message comes from the angel. Now go and give this message to his disciples, including Peter. He is going to Galilee ahead of you. Now, might we think that after Peter had let Jesus down so much that the message would be, now go and give this message to his disciples, uh, but not Peter. Um, He's going to Galilee ahead of you. No, there's a special message for Peter, the one who had let God down so greatly. Again, it speaks to the kind of person our God is. All right, so this is how he dealt with his disciples. How about sinners? Now, of course, the disciples, all of us are sinners, but I'm talking about people who really um, um, are away from God and an open rebellion. And uh, the Message Bible, you know, it's... uh, uh, very colorful. I like the way it describes this in Matthew 9, 10, and 11. Later, when Jesus was eating supper at Matthew's house with his close followers, a lot of disreputable characters came and joined them. When the Pharisees saw him keeping this kind of company, they had a fit and lit into Jesus' followers. What kind of example is this from your teacher acting cozy with crooks and riffraff? All right. Um, anyway, do we like that our God acts cozy with crooks and riffraff? Yeah, I mean, Jesus loves those people. Uh, I admire that about God. Oh, what about the woman caught in adultery? Again, was she not in open rebellion in her lifestyle? And the words from Jesus, I do not condemn you. And we think about the miracles of Jesus. To me, this is almost the greatest miracle because uh, this great kindness to this woman uh, didn't heal any physical part of her body, but was she not healed in the mind by this? Right? Isn't that the greatest miracle when we can change in character? And this woman went from where she was here to being one of Jesus' closest followers, you know, who was honored 
to be the one to welcome Jesus after the resurrection. Well, I mean, if it were us, we might choose Nicodemus or let's make John there at the tomb. But instead, uh, this woman is there to welcome Jesus at the resurrection. All right, how about the leper? And I like the way Jesus responded to the leper. Um, he's, who said, if you want to, you can make me clean. Jesus was filled with pity and reached out and touched him. I do want to, he answered, be clean. Same words, the father and the prodigal son, his heart was filled with pity. How many times do we read this? Jesus was filled with pity. And again, when he saw the large crowd, his heart was filled with pity for them. And he healed their sick. And this was at a point where he was exhausted, but his heart was filled with pity. And so he spent time with them. He healed them. And to the paralytic, Jesus gives him what he did not ask for with the words, your sins are forgiven, my friend. And again, he's trying to heal the mind. Then he did heal the body, but he wanted to restore healing uh, to this man. Okay, and of course, to the thief on the cross, um, I don't know how much he knew about who this person was hanging next to him. Uh, but as he's watching all of this, remember initially he's condemning Jesus, but then he watches him take care of his mother. He watches him just being loving and kind, forgiving his enemies. And the thief who just, you know, he's a thief. And if you're a thief, don't you want to be in a kingdom where the king forgives his enemies? And I think he was just one to all of that. And so Jesus' gracious words to him, of course, uh, assuring him that he would be with him in paradise. All right, and do you like that Jesus on the cross, you know, all these great controversy things pressing in on him, so many things that he looks around and he sees his mother. Jesus saw his mother and the disciple he loved standing there. So he said to his mother, he is your son. Then he said to the disciple, she is your mother. And from that time, the disciple took her to live in his home. Okay, do you like that Jesus would be concerned about things like this? I, I like that very much. But I think the greatest point of all we could make, um, and we touched on this with Judas, is how God deals with his enemies. All right, what could be more telling? Okay, not just with friends and rebels, but enemies. And I like that when the Pharisees sent the guards out to arrest Jesus, now they didn't know much about who this person was at all, but when the guards went back, the chief priests and Pharisees asked them, why did you not bring him? And the guards answered, nobody has ever talked the way this man does. I wish I knew exactly what Jesus said at that time when the guards went to get him. Uh, but it was something uh, wonderful. But let's, let's look here at how Jesus treats his enemies. Okay, these words in John where the Pharisees said, were we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and have a demon in you? Okay, was Jesus a Samaritan? Uh, of course, he didn't have a demon in him. But as we read this story, you know, I, I'm wanting Jesus to, boy, defend yourself. Um, but there's no wounded pride in all of these attacks. And in John 7, 41, 42, but others said the Messiah will not come from Galilee. And of course, there, there are those verses in Isaiah that suggest that he will. The scripture says that the Messiah will be a descendant of King David and will be born in Bethlehem, the town where David lived. Now, was Jesus a descendant of King David? Yes. Was he born in Bethlehem? Yes. So again, as I'm reading this story, I want Jesus to turn around and say, look, 
Here's my lineage. I am from King David and I was born in Bethlehem. But he is not self-defensive and he does not, you know, again, wounded pride when these lies about him are told. And he, we don't have any record of him uh, turning around and setting the record straight. All right, and coming back to the woman caught in adultery, now let's focus on the men that brought the woman caught in adultery. Okay, they, remember, under this false pretense, they come to Jesus. In our law, Moses commanded that such a woman must be stoned to death. And we are holding to that eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Don't budge us from that. Now, what do you say? They said this to trap Jesus so that they could accuse him. But he bent over and wrote on the ground with his finger. As they stood there asking him questions, he straightened up and said, whichever one of you has committed no sin may throw the first stone at her. Then he bent over again and wrote on the ground. When they heard this, and I think when they saw what he was writing on the ground, they all left one by one, the older ones first. Jesus was left alone with the woman still standing there. Now, what do you think he wrote on the ground? Did Jesus know the hearts and the minds of those people who brought this woman caught in adultery? Could he read their life story and the things that they had done? And uh, they are bringing this woman, they're self-righteous, this woman, look what she's done. And Jesus, you know, he could have, look at the different ways he could have done this. He could have said, gather around everyone. I want to tell you about these frauds. Look at this man here. Let me tell you what he did. And this one here, let me tell you what he did. All right, but how does God choose to do it? He writes in the dirt. Now, how many saw what he wrote in the dirt? Would it not just be the men who were right there? How long do words last when you write them on a dusty road? Not very long. All right, so they saw them. The older people left first and uh, really almost reputation intact, right? Would they not know, you know, what this man... Jesus, he's reading our hearts. He's reading our minds. And uh, should they not say, wow, that was so kind of the way he dealt with us. He knew exactly what was on my mind, uh, but he was kind in the way he revealed it to us. And then uh, maybe the last story here, uh, it's told so well by Ellen White that I, I put the words in your hand out there. The feast at the house of Simon. You remember Simon was healed of leprosy, and he's there with Judas. And um, uh, this is an amazing story um, uh, that is told in uh, Desire of Ages. Simon the host had been influenced by the criticism of Judas upon Mary's gift, and he was surprised at the conduct of Jesus. His Pharisaic pride was offended. He knew that many of his guests were looking upon Christ with distrust and displeasure. Simon said in his heart, this man, if he were a prophet, would have known who and what manner of woman this is that toucheth him, for she is a sinner. By curing Simon of leprosy, Christ had saved him from a living death. But now Simon questioned whether the Savior were a prophet, because Christ allowed this woman to approach him, because he did not indignantly spurn her as one whose sins were too great to be forgiven, because he did not show that he realized she had fallen. Simon was tempted to think that he was not a prophet. Jesus knows nothing of this woman who is so free in her demonstrations, he thought, or he would not allow her to touch him. 
But it was Simon's ignorance of God and of Christ that led him to think as he did. He did not realize that God's Son must act in this way. And again, the only way for God of love to act with compassion, tenderness, and mercy. Simon's way was to take no notice of Mary's penitent service. Her act of kissing Christ's feet and anointing them with ointment was exasperating to his hard-heartedness. He thought that if Christ were a prophet, he would recognize sinners and rebuke them. Right? What does God do? He recognizes sinners and loves them. Okay? His model was the opposite. All right, now, what should God do? He is reading the mind of Simon. All right? He realizes what he is thinking. All right? Again, should he humiliate Simon? Well, let's read on what he did. To this unspoken thought, the Savior answered, Simon, I have somewhat to say unto thee. There was a certain creditor which had two debtors. The one owed 500 pence and the other 50. And when they had nothing to pay, he frankly forgave them both. Tell me, therefore, which of them will love him most? Simon answered and said, I suppose that he to whom he forgave the most. And he said unto him, Thou hast rightly judged. As did Nathan with David, Christ concealed his home thrust until the veil of a parable. He threw upon his host the burden of pronouncing sentence upon himself. Simon had led into sin the woman he now despised. And I don't put all this in here, but Simon, um, according to Ellen White, was her uncle and had led her into sin. She had been deeply wronged by him. By the two debtors of the parable, Simon and the woman were represented. Jesus did not design to teach that different degrees of obligation should be felt by the two persons, for each owed a debt of gratitude that never could be repaid. But Simon felt himself more righteous than Mary, and Jesus desired him to see how great his guilt really was. He would show that his sin was greater than hers, as much greater as a debt of 500 pence exceeds a debt of 50 pence. Simon now began to see himself in a new light. He saw how Mary was regarded by one who was more than a prophet. He saw that with keen prophetic eye, Christ read her heart of love and devotion. Shame seized upon him and he realized that he was in the presence of one superior to himself. I entered into thine house, Christ continued. Thou gavest me no water for my feet, but with tears of repentance. And, and it's interesting here how Ellen White um, as she quotes the Bible, puts in her own uh, words here. Uh, Thou gavest me no water for my feet, but with tears of repentance, prompted by love, Mary hath washed my feet and wiped them with the hair of her head. Thou gavest me no kiss, but this woman, whom you despise, since the time I came in, hath not ceased to kiss my feet. Christ recounted the opportunities Simon had to show his love for his Lord and his appreciation of what he had done for him. Plainly, yet with delicate politeness, the Savior assured his disciples that his heart is grieved when his children neglect to show their gratitude to him by words and deeds of love. The heart searcher read the motive that led to Mary's action, and he saw also the spirit that prompted Simon's words. Seest thou this woman? He said to him, She is a sinner. I say unto thee, Her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But to whom little is forgiven, the same loveth little." Simon's coldness and neglect toward the Savior showed him how little he appreciated the mercy he had received. He had thought he honored Jesus by inviting him to his house, but he now saw himself as he really was. While he thought himself reading his guest, his guest had been reading him. He saw how true Christ's judgment of him was. His religion had been a robe of Phariseeism 
He had despised the compassion of Jesus. He had not recognized him as the representative of God. While Mary was a sinner pardoned, he was a sinner unpardoned. The rigid rule of justice he had desired to enforce against her condemned him. Now notice what Jesus did. Simon was touched by the kindness of Jesus in not openly rebuking him before the guests. He did it in such a veiled way. Simon totally understood that how much he admired that Jesus did not just come down on with a hammer on him, but instead he was kind in the way he brought this up to Simon. He had been, not been treated as he desired Mary to be treated. He was the one with the greater sin. All right, He wanted Mary to really be rebuked by Jesus. Now he saw that he was the one who really deserved that rebuke. How does God rebuke? Well, in the way he dealt with Simon. He had not been treated as he desired Mary to be treated. He saw that Jesus did not wish to expose his guilt to others, but sought by a true statement of the case to convince his mind and by pitying kindness to subdue his heart. Stern denunciation would have hardened Simon against repentance. Okay, God knew that wouldn't work. But patient admonition convinced him of his error. He saw the magnitude of the debt which he owed his Lord. His pride was humbled. He repented. And the proud Pharisee became a lowly, self-sacrificing disciple. So again, the great kindness of our God in revealing to Simon, and he won him over by this. Again, a great miracle of Jesus in the way he dealt with this. So I see again and again in the life of Jesus, kindness, love, kindness, love. That is what we should respond to. But again, as in the, with the rich man and, and Lazarus, he will, just like the God of the Old Testament, uh, in that verse in Hosea 4.16, if we're as stubborn as a mule, uh, how can I talk with you like lambs in a meadow? Well, uh, we'll finish off the rest of this handout. And again, we're going to talk about intercession uh, in the afternoon. Let's pray. <clears throat> Father, how much there is to admire about you. And we love that as your son came, that in his selfless way, he did not come repeating again and again to the people, I am God, I am God, but and again in his selfless, other-centered love was continually saying, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father, continually trying to point us to the kind of person that you are. May we be one by your kindness and to your side. Amen. <clears throat>